Hi, I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylin. And, and this, this is, is Death, Death Row Dialogue. This is a true crime podcast where we talk about death row inmates. And this is one of our special episodes that is an out-of-state. And we do this based off of who has the most lessons for that state other than Texas. And this week that was Colorado. So have you been to Colorado? I have been to Colorado. Been skiing there a few times and also been there a couple times just to visit. I was there for a layover once on my way to Wyoming. Like two hours in the airport? I think one year there was like technical difficulties and we were there for like four hours. Oh, but in the airport? Yeah, yeah, we didn't leave the airport. <laughs> I don't know if I'll count that one. Okay, okay. I was in the state. I didn't get to really see the state, but I was there. So we're talking about Gary Lee Davis. And he was actually born in Wichita, Kansas on August 13th, 1944. And he was raised by his mother and also claimed to be sexually abused by his older stepbrothers. He dropped out of school in ninth grade and joined the U.S. Marine Corps in 1961 when he was 17. He married Tanya Ann Tatum and had two sons before divorcing her. He was a job hopper after he got out of the Marine Corps just going from job to job to job, before marrying Leona Coates in 1974, when he was 30 and she was 17 years old. And they had four children. So, he had a criminal record of grand larceny and burglary in Kansas in 1970 and 1971, and he had a menacing in Colorado in 1972. He was also jailed in 1982 on sexual assault conviction in Colorado. So, he was already stalking women and sexually abusing them. Right. Before this happened. So, when he was in jail for the um, sexual assault conviction, he started writing Rebecca Fincham. And they got married in 1984 while Davis was in prison. And then in 1985, they moved together to Byers, Colorado. How does that, is there like a dating... <clears throat> An article in the newspaper for her. I'm not sure how it worked in 1980. I'm, I'm sure there was just like a pen pal program where you just contacted the prison or jail close to you. But I know now that it is like kind of popular to message people that are in prison. Like um, when I was researching some cases when we first started, I was looking up a pen pal program and you can... There's a certain one, I can't remember what it's called, but you go to it, you click the state, and then you click the jail, and it'll bring up people that have um, accounts. And so it'll have their picture of them or a mugshot of them, and then it'll have a little description of them. I don't think it always says what they're in jail for. I think that's up to them to tell you. But, I mean, it is common. Yeah. And, like, I've seen it on TikTok a lot. Oh. Where people are like, my jail husband, and then they're like... Jail husband? And they're like, we uh, started messaging or te- writing back and forth, and then I went to see him, and then we got married. Yeah. I mean, good for them. Yeah. If if it helps them out, then... Not in this case. Not in this case. I think there are some cases where you could, like, find, you know, like, somebody that helps you bring you out of, like, the dark place you were in in prison or, you know help you rehabilitate, but not in this case. Yeah. This is not that case. So, um, he was a self-proclaimed alcoholic. He had said that when he drinks that he is a real live monster. 
But he's not like that when he's sober. So, um, this actually happened on July 21st, 1968, only a year after Rebecca and Davis moved to Byers. And Davis was 42. Him and Rebecca kidnapped their neighbor, 34-year-old Virginia May, in front of her children. After they kidnapped her, they drove her to a deserted field where Davis raped Virginia, then shot her 14 times with a rifle. And so there was actually an exclusive done with Virginia's sister-in-law, whose name was Susan. And Susan said that she had met Rebecca and Davis through church. And Rebecca had talked to Susan and said, I have um, some clothes. You know, I got some new clothes from my mom, but they don't fit and they don't fit my daughter. And I know you have a little girl, so I'll just drop them off for you. And so um, Susan was like, yeah, like, come on over. Like, we can always need new clothes. And Susan had a little daughter. Her name was Becky, and she was eight years old. So Rebecca and Davis came over to their house, and they had one of those um, semicircle driveways. And she said it was weird because usually people just pull in, and then, you know, they can just go straight out. But Davis backed in so that he could go out the same way he um, went in. And he said, uh, Susan said that Rebecca came up to her and she noticed that when she got out of the car, she didn't have any clothes. She didn't have a bag with her. And you know, when somebody gives you something and like, you feel obligated to have like a conversation with them because you know, they just gave you something. You don't want to seem like you're just taking something and leaving. Right. So she was talking to Rebecca and Rebecca started talking about how she beats men up. And Susan's like, okay, like this is kind of weird. And she said that, like, Rebecca was scary. And she had asked Rebecca, like, why did Gary not get out of the car, Davis? Why did he not get out of the car to, like, come talk to me? And she's like, oh, Gary has a migraine. He's not going to get out of the car. And um, they found out later that they were going to kidnap Susan, but Susan had a ranch hand that she had hired that had showed up at that time to do some work for them. And so Rebecca got mad and left without giving Susan any clothes. And her and Gary got back in the car and went down one door, which was Virginia's house. So they, they showed up and she said, I like to beat up men and then left? Yeah. Saw the ranch hand and I was like, oh, we can't kidnap her now. So we're going to get back in the car, drive to the next house over, which was Virginia's house. I'm just thinking if... That this happened to me, I mean, I don't know the whole phone situation, but, like, I would probably call 911, you know? Do you think? If they, I guess it depends on how they're talking to you, but the whole conversation seems pretty sketchy, you know? I mean, yeah, but I think most people would just think of it as, like, that was a weird interaction. You know, they don't think, like, their mind doesn't automatically jump to, oh, they're going next door, or they were going to kidnap me. Yeah. You know? Especially if you know them. It, yeah. So it's more of, like, in hindsight. Like, yeah, yeah I would have done that. But if I'm thinking, like, I answer 911 calls. If I got a 911 call from someone that was like, hey, like, this person came to drop off clothes. They didn't have clothes, and they said this weird thing. I'd be like, that's kind of weird, but, I mean, do you want us to talk to them? You know? Yeah. Like, it's kind of that thing. So, it's hindsight, yes, but I think in the moment you wouldn't think that it's outlandish. Like you said, especially if you know them. 
So they went over to Virginia's house and they knocked on her door and asked to borrow some fence stretchers. And so Virginia kept those in her shed. So she goes out to her shed and they hit her um, on the top of the head from behind while her eight-year-old son was inside the house watching. So they hit her while she's trying to get in the shed and take her into the car. And that's when they take her to that field to rape and murder her. And so um, once Davis was caught, I didn't have information about how long it took him to get caught, but he confessed and agreed to lead them to the body if prosecutors didn't pursue the death penalty. But Wait, so this is the pen pal who met him in, in prison and now they're abducting women? Yes. Well, and that's what I'm thinking, is, like, she probably knew, Rebecca, the one that contacted him, his wife now, probably knew that, like, she had this dark... Desire. You know, obsession, something inside of her. And she's like, well, I should just contact people in prison that have already done this. Yeah. I mean, I always wonder, like, these cases, we've had them before where the women is helping the man. Mm -hmm. Is it, like, a Stockholm syndrome or something you know maybe in other cases but not this one she reached she reached out to him yeah and you know talked to him for so long and then married him so i mean they talked for two years while he was still in prison oh wow yeah so um he confessed despite his lawyer's advice and during trial he admitted to have raped an estimate of 15 different women. So, and I don't think that he had murdered them. I think this was the first one that he had murdered, but. That's 15 is insane. One is insane. Yeah. 15 is way too many. And I don't know if that counts as the one that he was in jail for before, um, so, but uh, the they only took three hours to reach a verdict and then sentenced him to death on July 21st in 1987. Rebecca did have a separate trial and she was sentenced to life in prison. While he was in jail, he reconnected with past wives and he um, is said to have experienced a dramatic spiritual conversion, which is typical for being on death row. Right. So, for his execution, his last meal was ice cream. It didn't say what type of ice cream or how much. Just ice cream. Just a... Imagine just a gallon of ice cream. Uh, I don't know. You get a brain freeze before dying. (laughs) So, uh, before his execution, he did request a cigarette, but due to prison having a smoking ban, he was denied. So, I guess he requested cigarette and ice cream, and he only got the ice cream. Or maybe it was like, he's like, I just want a cigarette. And they're like, best we can do is ice cream. Or it was like cigarette flavored ice cream. Ew, that is disgusting. <laughs> I can't believe you said that. Uh, there was no final statement and he died by lethal injection at 8.33 p.m. on October 13, 1997. So he was 53 years old. He was the first person executed in three decades. And there were 200 anti-death protesters outside during his execution. And he was the only person executed between 1968 and 2020 when Colorado abolished the death penalty. 
Oh, so they don't have it anymore? Nope. As of 2020? Correct. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yep. So... And he was the only one? Yep. So he was... The death penalty was abolished from 1897 to 1901. And then they started executions again. And then um, I there was, you know, that pause where executions were illegal. Okay. I don't right. know when... I don't know the year on that. But when the United States reinstated it from 1972 to 2020, he was the only one. In Colorado. In Colorado, yes. So if we get another Colorado one, I'll have to go back further and we'll probably have to go to, like, electric chair and hanging times to try to find one. So if you're interested in that, get all your Colorado friends to listen. Rebecca died in prison in 2008. And that is the only Colorado execution since 1972. What, what was his last words? There was none. Oh. Yeah. Wow. There was, he denied a statement. Wow, that's uh, really unfortunate. I mean, like, I hate, I would have hated either one of them to get raped or killed but like to to survive because you have a ranch hand is kind of yeah that survivor skill you know and like you know how common it is for at least here in texas i'm not sure how it is other places but how common it is for people to live on the same land as their family members right and so that's something like so realistic for me to see like oh one house didn't work you just go on to the next one and that next one happened to be your relative right so Tragic. I can't imagine, like, her survivor's guilt. Oh, yeah. So. We will be back with a normal one next episode. And we will um, see y'all then. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye, guys. Bye.